Welcome to Thinking Too Hard About Anime, an anime discussion podcast. It's a little bit of history, a little bit of analysis, and a lot of overexamining the Japanese cartoons we love so much. I am your co-host, Aaron J. Shelton, and with me, as always, is... Noah Carden. And we are continuing our, our deep dive into Hideaki Anno uh, through our cleverly titled <laughs> series, Hideaki Anno <laughs> Domini. Uh, and we are, we are getting to it. We're going to talk a little bit about Gainax and Anno's directorial debut with Gunbuster, Aim for the Top, from 1988. Uh, but uh, there are a few things he did before then. Uh, so mm-hmm. let us get into it. Let's. When we last left our hero, uh, he, he had just got off Nausicaa, um, and he was just continuing to bum around Tokyo and just work on different animations. Um, uh, through this and people he met, he actually formed Studio Gravitron, which what it seems like it was, it was more of one of those uh, four higher studios, mm-hmm. uh, except, I believe, with Project Aiko. Uh, but we'll get into the why of that here in a second. Uh, but yeah, it was just a, he he helped to establish it with Shoichi Masuo, uh, whose animation works include Yursei Yatsura, uh, Dirty Pear, Project Aiko. Uh, he also worked on some Gainax films and has also worked on the Studio Kara Evangelion films. Part of the studio was also Katsuhiko Nishijima, and they're the creator of Project Aiko. Uh, Nishijima was also one of the key animators on Gunbuster, Yurusei Yatsura, and Vampire Hunter D. Uh, and if Wikipedia is to be <laughs> believed, uh, they are known for their panty shots. <laughs> um, oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, there was... Uh, so in my research, uh, I, I found a very cool uh, compilation video of some of Nishijima's uh, animation. Uh, very cool impact shots. Mm. Um, there are a lot of panties, but just super cool fluid motion. And have you watched any Yurisei yet, Sarah? Uh, I think I've only just seen like stuff used in like clips or anything like mm-hmm. that. I've never actually sat down and watched like an episode all the way through. It, it's, it's a fun little anime. I had a friend growing up, uh, and by growing up, I mean in our early twenties, uh, that was, <laughs> uh, a r- love Rumiko Takahashi, uh, Mm. Was really into it. Has a lum tattoo. The uh, the the oni alien girl. Yeah. Um. But it's just yeah. It's just fun, goofy animation. Uh. Yeah. I put I, I put it. In, I put that little collage in our in under our sources. Cause it's just fun, big eyed, goofy action. Nice. So, but yeah. So Ano is kind of sort of part of this studio. I think what we're going to learn as we go further is that, except for Kara, Anno is sort of... He's not a joiner. It seems like he doesn't like to belong. Yeah. Um, I I noticed this this kind of comment in, I think it's Studio Kara profile, where it talks about, like, once he gets married, this is way down the line, he becomes a lot less edgy. (laughs) <laughs> like that's like that's the quote is that he loses weight and becomes less edgy and um yeah i think at this point like you know he's young he's trying to figure out what he's doing with his life as like an animator and, and working in the animation industry which is already like super stressful and it's such 
like work for hire freelance kind of stuff at the time that I, I could definitely see him having this sort of like attitude where uh, he, he doesn't really want to get attached or anything like that. He's very like passionate about stuff, but he's also like he knows that like once this project ends, I could very easily be out on my butt again looking for more work, that kind of deal. So, yeah, just that kind of attitude persists for a long time, I think. It's as someone who has done that lifestyle and has had that attitude to a degree. It it's a little intoxicating because it can feel like, oh, if I just work really hard for a little bit, I'll get a nice lump of money and then I can not do anything for a while. Yeah, and it, it's it it is a little intoxicating. Uh, again, according uh, to his studio Cara bio, uh, he only worked there when he needed money, and it was yeah. also lived there. <laughs> It was his other apartment. Yeah, um, yeah. Like like you were saying at the, at the top of the the gravitron stuff. Um, it really seems like it's sort of like a pickup or like support studio for for other studios. Because I mean, obviously, like kind of like we talked about with um, Macross, how it's like four or five studios actually doing like all of the animations for like this one like bigger studio that just kind of oversees it. That kind of feels like what what Studio Gravitron is or was at the time. It was just, hey, we need some bodies to to work on these shows. Go grab the studio. They're, they do good work, that kind of deal. Yeah, he's definitely still floating uh, until um, we we get we get to Gynex, uh, the, the official formation, uh, which was essentially just trying to... They just needed a more professional name and studio. Mm-hmm. For them to transition into more professional work, um, but Gynex uh, was officially founded on Christmas Eve in 1984. The founding members are, in 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 no particular order, Hideaki Anno, Yoshiyuki Sadamoto, uh, who Anno met uh, during his time at Macross, Hiroyuki Yamaga, and Takami Akai, uh, the the college bros and the Daikon bros from Episode <laughs> One. Uh, we also met Toshio Okada in episode one, uh, the Ota King, and uh, the bankroll of the whole project, uh, essentially. Hmm. Uh, we also get Yasuhiro Takeda, uh, who was the producer and general manager at Gainax, uh, and Shinji Higuchi, uh, who again we met uh, in episode one, uh, the, talk- the tokusatsu guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The term Gynex is based on an obscure Tatori prefecture term for giant, uh, with the English suffix of X added because it sounded, quote, good and was international. Uh, and in the Aichi dialect, Gaina can mean rowdy or loose cannon. Which, <laughs> yeah, which, that's, uh, that was something I, I found in the, the non-techie memoir, memoirs. That apparently it has a couple different versions, variations, depending on where you're at. And yeah. They, they thought that was also kind of appropriate after the fact. Yeah, that's all those I think fit very well. Um, I love that this is such a like 20 something year old dude thing to do. It's like, oh, just add X. It'll be cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were on the, the gamer tag <laughs> mindset before it became with the. Yeah, thank God they were the first one to get Gynex. They didn't have to add a number to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the studio initially. Uh, was established in a large apartment in Takadano Baba, uh, which is the neighborhood in the Shinjuku ward in Tokyo. Um, President Toshio Okada, uh, also known as the Ota King, 
I believe, self-imposed nickname? Maybe. Toshi Okada is kind of a fascinating guy if you look at, like, his career. Because, like, he's the president of Gainax for a number of years. And then he's running, like, this... um, He's running general products, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment. But also, like in 2003, he was a lecturer, a lecturer at MIT. Yeah, he again, it seems like he's the guy with the money and we'll see uh-huh. where he gets his money. Um, but it, it's yeah, it is. I don't know how he fits creatively. It doesn't seem like he fits into this uh, as one might think. Mm-hmm. But just uh a wild figure, I feel like. Uh, yeah, he he kind of comes off as sort of like the money behind a lot of stuff, obviously, with, with, with Gynax. But also as sort of, it almost feels like he's sort of a tastemaker, kind of. Mm. Like like he kind of helps sets trends or decides what's going to be cool, at least at this point in history. Like, I don't know how, how influential he really is nowadays. At the time, that's kind of what it, it, it felt like. For sure. Um, so before Gynax even formed, he had a company that was called General Products, which was just a way for him to sell garage kits and other science fiction stuff, uh, a way to get licensing. Um, and this is where they sold all their Daikon film merch and videos. Uh, and through a lot of those early years, General Products is how Gynax kept going. Mm-hmm. For the profits from General Products, uh, yes. they got uh, they started the company with roughly two million yen, which is about eighty five hundred U.S. dollars in nineteen eighty four money. And it honestly seems like that Toshio is, is just this rich kid because he because General Products was I don't know the particulars, but my understanding from the reading is that it it's like a subsidiary. Or his parents helped him out with the initial cost. Hmm. His parents were involved somehow with general products. I gotcha. But he even, uh, in just Toshio, again, he's like you said, a tastemaker, someone who loves science fiction and genre. Yeah. Um, he even got permission from noted sci fi author Larry Niven uh, to use the name General Products, uh, which was a company from his known space setting, AKA Ringworld. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you showed this to me earlier. You do have a a Gunbuster art book that yes, is branded so, General Products. Yes, I have a an art book like a, a couple years ago, I think at Katsukan that just it's the complete Gunbuster, and along the side it just says General Products presents. And for like the longest time, up until we started researching all this, uh, I was like, what What does that mean? What is like? It's it's just such a strange. Uh, uh, title on it, but yes, uh, it's just a neat little like partial color art book. With um, there's ads for like Nadia and Gunbuster products in here, um, like within the art book itself. Yes, within the art book itself, there's straight up like an ad for um, like hey, you want a Nadia figure or like this one twenty thousandth scale Excelion ship. Or something along those lines. Like, hey, we got you covered. And then there's a bunch of like uh, character sheets and like concept art, basically the the pencil sketches for like, hey, this is how this should be blocked, or hey, this is what all the different angles inside of like the cockpit look like. That kind of thing. It's in there. It's really neat. It's a really neat book. Um, I'm very lucky to have it. I know. If when we meet in real life, it's just gonna be 
hey, it's going to be like we're kids just hanging out in your room and looking at <laughs> yeah, cool art books. All my shit. <laughs> um, but like we said, Gainax was a means to an end. Uh, they wanted to do more professional productions, and they were given the opportunity uh, to partner with Bandai uh, for the production of Royal Space Force, The Wings of Hanayamis. In 1987, probably didn't say that right. Can anyone say that right? I I've always said it Honamese, but uh, yeah, it's it's kind of an unusual word. I think technically they're supposed to be like accent marks over like half of the consonants or something like that. It's a I've never quite quite gotten it right. I think I am going to just call it Royal Space Force because that was the original title pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the wings of Honeyamis. <laughs> there we go. Saying a third time. Um, that that was for marketing. So we could skip that. That's a marketing add-on. Um, this is. Uh, we'll touch on this briefly because I you could. I watch video. I watch like almost like an hour long video on this because it, it's a fascinating from a production standpoint. But uh, Anna was involved in this as the mechanical director. So we'll touch on it, but we won't get too deep into it. And I also think at the time when we were planning this, I think as of this recording, it's on Crunchyroll or Verve. Uh, I think you can get it through Apple as well. I think when we were planning this, it was like, nope, this is like 500 bucks (laughs) to get a copy. Yeah, it's insane. But Royal Space Force uh, was written and directed by Hiroyuki Yamaga. Uh, and the plot centers around an alternate Earth's 10-year struggle to launch the first manned spacecraft. So due to the connections between General Products and Bandai, uh, the studio was able to pitch this OVA. Um, but uh, producer Shigeru Watanabe got involved. Uh, Shigeru Watanabe was a producer on Ghost in the Shell, uh, Jinro the Wolf Brigade, Steam Boy, uh, a bunch. A, a fairly big name uh, within the theatrical anime industry. Uh, he pushed it so to be a theatrical film. Um, and supposedly part of that was because of the success of Nausicaa. Uh, and we'll get how influenced Nausicaa was on this film from mainly from a marketing perspective. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they came in. They're like, hey, let's do an OVA. We'll do something small. You know, it'll still be cool. But then things got a little out of hand. And I think in the first episode, we kind of mention OVAs, but mm-hmm. I want to dig just a little more into it. Uh, so an OVA stands for Original Video Anime uh, and was created in the early 80s, uh, essentially to fill a need within the market. Um, you have the advent of home video. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whenever you have a new medium uh, or a new way to watch um, visual content, there is always a gap that needs to be filled with content. Um, so that's where people were just hungry. They had machines. They needed product for it. It's kind of, it's almost as simple as that. Uh, similar right. to sort of here in the States uh, where we had the the boom, where we had the boom from like VHS and direct-to-video movies. Um, I know a few people who were around in that time. And I, part of me kind of wishes I was like maybe 10, like 15 years older. Mm-hmm. So I could sort of get in on that time. Cause you no, you could make bank. You can make so much bank <laughs> making <laughs> these direct to video horror movies. Cause they hey. just needed it. They just needed it. 
But hey, man, I watched all five Scanners films recently. <laughs> uh, let me tell you, Scanners 3, that's a fucking buckwild film. I would recommend it to everybody because it is crazy. Did you watch Scanner Cop? Yes, Scanner Cop and Scanner Cop 2. You, you've beat, I've only seen the first Scanners, so you, you've beat me to it. But this was, I mean, we're also in Japan's economic boom, or mm-hmm. we're at the tail end of it. Uh, I don't know the exact dates of what it's classified as. Uh, I think the first few years of the 90s is when the, the bubble sort of pops there. So we're, yeah, so we're in the middle of the economic boom. Uh, because, uh, what do they do? Uh, they give them 800 million yen <laughs> to Jeez. make Royal Space Force, which in today's dollars is about 8.7 million USD. So, again, you're a group of guys who've made these shorts for funsies, <laughs> and suddenly someone's like, hey, here's $10 million. <laughs> Go yes. ham. Um, and it gets into, and, and like we get into, or at least from what I've seen, I feel like there is some maybe apocryphal sort of things. I think there's one narrative that could be pitched where it's, you know, Bandai taking advantage of... Uh, a young company, because uh, mm-hmm. I think Bandai at the time were still just toy makers or video game. They, they were not quite into the anime game at this point. Mm. It was the very beginning. I could be I could be speaking out of turn, but there's sort of the I think there's one narrative where it's Yamaga and Okada uh, were like, yeah, 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 we can get you this and sort of talking themselves up to get this money. And Bandai supposedly banking on merchandising, which you this is a very this is a difficult film to merchandise. Yeah, uh, I, I believe again I haven't watched it, but I believe there's like no sequel potential either. <laughs> yeah, um, so it's sort of a back and forth of who did what to who. But as far as the actual production, uh, they had 18 months of pre-production. Um, they they really built out the world of Royal Space Force. Uh, didn't really think too much about plot. Um, like their money or little sticks. <laughs> they redid money. Um, uh, but they, this also included a trip to the United States uh, to watch a shuttle launch. Uh, and if, uh, I mean, if nothing else, watch that rocket launch mm-hmm. sequence. It's, it's gorgeous and beautiful. Uh, and, and part of it uh, is because this film did use computer assisted animation uh, for some difficult motion shots. Uh, mainly some things like turning or rotating and like it looks super smooth. Um, and this is because the motions were rendered using an ASCII 3D software and then traced onto cells. So it's hand drawn, but the the I guess the in between, I guess you could say what was computer aided. Mm, yeah. Bandai sort of saw what was coming <laughs> with Royal Space Force. Uh, and so they tried to get ahead of it. And again, they wanted to be like Nausicaa. Uh, supposedly there were posters that were created by Bandai that took a bug that was in the movie, but then made it big uh, within a poster to hmm. sort of ride those coattails. And some of the early character designs were, were very Ghibli-esque, apparently. Not not from Bandai's doing, from, from Gainax. Um, uh, this... This movie was a flop, <laughs> for sure. Um, Bandai did not make their money back. Uh, again, this was released in 1987. Bandai did not make their money back until September 1994. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I like this little note you found. During the production uh-huh. of Royal Space Force, Anna would finally rent an apartment in Tokyo. Yeah. I love, <laughs> like, finally. Yeah. Um, He's got Bandai money. He can do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that came from his Studio Kara um, profile. And also, uh, apparently Anna was responsible for recruiting staff for the film, as well as doing the mechanical design and, and, and animation. So, like, <laughs> awkward old Hideaki Anno comes knocking on your door to be like, hey, come come work for us. I feel like those are very short interviews. Yes. He, he looks at your stuff, and then if he doesn't like it, he probably just walks away. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Does an Ultraman pose. Yes. He's, he's out. Yes. He, he schwatches into the sky, and, and you never see him again. Um, later on, Bandai Visual... Uh, a distribution subsidiary of Bandai Bandai Namco would use the Hanayami's name for a distribution imprint focused on deluxe editions and more artistic releases like Gunbuster. Uh, but the imprint would become defunct in 2008. Yep. Uh, so both my sets of, of Gunbuster and the, the Gunbuster, the movie, have Honami's along the side. This, um, that three-color, uh, it's the shape is called the tomoi. It's that comma sort of shape. Um, it's three of those like around each other. Um, but yes, yeah, so like certain releases, like I think Royal Space Force when it got released over here, and Gunbuster and a, a number of other things would would fall under the the Honami's imprint of of Bandai Visual. I think Bandai Visual is also oh technically I think they closed in 2018 and just shifted all their stuff to other companies. Yeah, but. Uh... We're not doing a series on Bandai, or are we? <laughs> I mm, the corporate that's, intrigue. That's a, that's a lot of stuff. Bandai is <laughs> Bandai. Bandai is a very weird and interesting company, but yeah, I don't think I don't think we would have enough time in the world to do <laughs> a series on Bandai. Um, again, just to close out on Royal Space Force and how it it was very much a learning. It, it seems like. It was a big learning experience for Gynax, uh, definitely biting off more than they can chew, figuring out what sells and not just. I think that's like when you learn uh, as you're moving from amateur to professional, um, I think there is a learning period of especially when you're creating your own content uh, and you're not necessarily for hire. There is a learning curve of like what you want to do versus what is marketable. And there's a there's a balance there. And it feels like this is sort of them learning that very harsh lesson um, be, in sort of the perfect way to top this off is that apparently, uh, although they could have, Gynax did not declare bankruptcy after the production of Royal Space Force uh, because no one knew they could do it. <laughs> no one knew that was a thing that as a company you could do. Um <laughs> Oh, these fucking goobers. That's that's the thing. They don't know. They got $10 million. <laughs> and they don't know how business does. I mean, we'll, we, again, with um, Okada, we'll, we'll see time and time and again. It's like, mm, yeah, you're not a business person. <laughs> yeah. You, you should not be doing this. You should be. You're more like a manager. You're, I mean, maybe not even that. Uh, whatever. Yeah, be a tastemaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but that, but that does bring us to uh, the the main topic for this yes. episode. So, uh, in 1988, we would get "Aim for the Top" 
Gunbuster, Top Onare. Um, so uh, after uh, Royal Space Force's release and sort of the, the disappointing uh, reception, Anna would kind of distance himself from Gynax uh, for a while, um, choosing to focus on growing Studio Gravitron. Um, that is until he would stumble upon uh, Yamaga's script for the second episode of Gunbuster, which, according to his Kara uh, biography, uh, Anna was moved to tears and then would kind of agonize over the decision to to apply for directing it. Uh, there was some delays in the production at the time, uh, with Shinji Higuchi originally slated to direct, um, but with these delays and things like that, uh, they did eventually decide to take Anno and, and give him the directorial position, making this his first like major project that he directed. Um, and that apparently Bandai offered uh, that if they could sell 20 or if they could sell 10,000 copies that they would flip the bill for the production. So uh, Gunbuster is a, a six episode OVA series. So it's all direct to video. Um, and Toshio Akata said that it is not a creative work, but a commodity. Um, I actually got this out of the little booklet that came with my my DVD set where it talks about the the production and sort of like the the weird sort of like nature of fan service throughout the series um, that it's just sort of this layers of sci-fi and, and nascent otaku culture just kind of layered on top of each other at the time to kind of form this narrative in that it starts out incredibly like kind of goofy and fan service heavy. And then as you get to the latter half of the series, it becomes much more dramatic and it's kind of, it's kind of shocking what they did with, you know, something that was definitely made to kind of get a quick buck and what they ended up with. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely the beginning of the Gynax playbook. Yes. Uh, of st- you milk before me. Let's get them in with what they, what those dirty boys know they want. Yes, um, and then we're gonna flip the script on them. I, uh, I'll save it for later when we're mm-hmm. discussing the series. But I just, I love sort of, for lack of a better word, trash genre mm-hmm. <laughs> tropes that are ta- that go in like this kind of direction or are flipped yeah. on their head. Where it's like, no, 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 we're gonna take it seriously, but we'll we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and so, spoilers, by the way. <laughs> yes. So spoilers for Gunbuster. I'm about to do a quick um, synopsis of the six of the series. Well, uh, um, should we watch? Should we go in before we get into this? Should we put the uh, the recommended viewing? Because, again, this is this series is out, completely out of print currently. Yes. So, OK. So originally, this was a, a like I said, a six episode OVA series. Which, if you have the money to actually get a copy of that, you're more than welcome to. It is um, it is out of print, at least in the West. Um, it is very difficult to come by, and it's very expensive when you do. But uh, I believe in 2006 they released uh, Gunbuster the movie, um, which was paired with its sequel, Die Buster, also as a movie. Um, both of them are, are six episodes, but they condense them down to hour and a half long movies, which um, really squeezes a lot of stuff. Um, it basically takes uh, the first three episodes 
and squashes them down to about 20 minutes and then cuts the fourth episode uh, basically in half. And then the final two episodes are their usual like 20 to 25 minute long length. So uh, the entire first episode is eight minutes long and isn't before the opening credits. <laughs> um, they cut out like huge plot points. Like there's characters that are entirely removed. Um, there are also characters who are removed from when they're introduced, but will then show up in the later episodes as if they hadn't been, uh, which makes it for kind of confusing if you've never seen the full version. Um, a, a really interesting thing about the movie, though, is that they actually got the voice actors to come back and re-record dialogue, uh, which uh, is, is kind of amazing. Um, they, they record some new dialogue and then did some re-records for other lines. Um, my understanding is that they there were some issues with both like the audio, like the music tracks and the dialogue tracks, and that like they couldn't be separated or something along those lines, which is why they had the voice actors come back. Um, yeah. That's also why apparently we never got a dubbed version of the movie or the series. Um, so a, a little film talk. Um, so when you're uh, delivering a movie, there are certain audio assets you have to provide. Um, you have to provide an M&E track, which stands for music and effects. And that is specifically for dubbing mm-hmm. purposes. So the whatever country they're in, they can insert their own dialogue. So that probably did not happen <laughs> or, you know, if you're making an OVA in Japan, you're not, th- you know, you're not thinking about international releases really. Yeah. Um, it seems like, and also at this time, probably still on tape. So that's probably also a, a factor. Yeah. Um, so all this going into it, um, they also, just because I think mainly because of the, the, the shortening of it, uh, there's a lot less boob and kind of what would probably be considered a bit more problematic elements. Uh, the to, jiggle. Yeah, a lot less jiggle and, and stuff like that. Um, so that's something to kind of take in mind, especially if you want if you want to be able to show Gunbuster to like some friends that aren't like big anime fans or, you know, just generally uncomfortable with that kind of stuff. Uh, this is probably the, the way to do it. Um, uh, and Gunbuster movie is actually available in the West. Um, it's available through High Dive which I believe is Sentai Filmworks streaming service, um, which if you get Verve, which is VRV, uh, that is tied in to all of that. So you, that is probably actually like the best way to do it is go get Verve, which gives you access to like High Dive and Crunchyroll and a whole bunch of other like streaming services. And it's it's in there. So and it's also uh, it's in HD. It's an HD like remaster of it, um, which they do some kind of neat things with like the aspect ratios, which we'll we'll, we'll get into that. In a, in, in a minute. Um, okay. So that all being said. <laughs> okay. Here's spoiler town. We're, we're here's here. the spoiler. Uh, I'm not going to go super, super deep into it, but we are going to hit all the major plot points of, of Gunbuster. So Gunbuster's story of Noriko Takea uh, as she works to save the Earth from the mysterious space monsters, the, the Uchu Kaiju, uh, that killed her father, Admiral Yuzo Takea. She goes to an all-girls, like, mecha pilot school in Okinawa, <laughs> which is great. I love it. Um, Noriko admires her upper classmate, Kazumi Amano, whom she calls uh, Onesama, which means big sister. 
I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast knows what Onesama means, yeah. but just in case. And uh, Noiko is determined to prove herself to Amano. She wants to to live up to um, what who she thinks Amano is. Uh, but she must first overcome her own inadequacies and, and self-doubt uh, through the power of hard work and guts, as she's mentored by Koichi Ota, better known as Coach. He is the the, the mentor sort of character. He actually turns out to be a survivor of the ship that uh, Noriko's father was on uh, when he killed. Uh, through Noriko's encounters with, at first, the school bully, Kashihara, uh, then friend, uh, then rival turned friend, the Soviet Jung Freud. Uh, the show was made in 88, after all, so the USSR was still a thing. Um and then finally, the the love and loss of her American friend Smith Torin. Uh, she eventually proves herself being worthy of both piloting the super weapon Gunbuster, a giant combining mecha capable of handling the devastating power of the space monsters, and worthy of herself. It's a, the first like three ish, three to four episodes is largely just Noriko, um, basically just kind of coming to terms with herself through her growing and being able to handle this just tremendous situation that he finds herself in. Um, and then the final two episodes deal with humanity's response to the space monsters. First sending Noriko and Kazumi and the Gunbuster to escort a decommissioned starship to become a black hole as sort of a last ditch, as sort of a last ditch attempt at uh, protecting the Earth. Uh, and then it picks up 15 years later with Noriko and Kazumi reuniting uh, and finally defeating the space monsters by turning Jupiter into uh, a black hole bomb. Uh, unfortunately, the two must make a severe sacrifice during the events of this this final battle um, and are unable to return to Earth until 12,000 years later, uh, unsure if their plan had worked. Um, so, so yeah, so that's sort of the, the, the overview. There's a lot that's not in there. Uh, and the way that it's all executed is amazing, but we'll 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 talk about that. Um, so the Japanese title "Top O Nere" is a dual reference to both Top Gun and Ace O Nere, was aim for the ace, uh, which were both heavily influenced, which were both heavy influences on the series. Um, it's been described that, especially like the first like two episodes, are almost like one for one. Uh, copies of uh, Aim for the Ace. Like, they're so close that it could be copyright infringement, <laughs> sort of close. Um, except instead of tennis, it's giant robots. Um, that's a that's a great way to work, though. Just steal a plot, change the elements, man. People do yeah. it all the time. All you're, the time. You're fine. Yeah. Um, and the series is chock full of sci-fi references, especially really big ones for the time. Um so, like, the initial machine weapons, the, the mecha that they use are called RX-7s, which are a nod to the RX-78-2 Mobile Suit Gundam from the original uh, series. Um, there are several Inazuma kicks that are a, a very obvious sort of common Rider homage. Um, when they, like, go faster than light hyperspace, they go through a Tannhauser gate, which is a Blade Runner reference. Um, and then just because a lot of this show happens on like these big sort of space battleships, uh, there's a lot of space battleship Yamato, uh, 
influencing the series with uh, even a a notice that happens during the like a scene during the ship during the scene on a ship where they talk about uh, supporting space radiation syndrome or eradication week, which is a, a disease that kills one of the major characters in Space Battleship Yamato. Um, I've always liked that little reference. I've always thought it was like, hey, support sp- support stopping space cancer. I thought that was that's always been kind of a a cute little reference. Um, <laughs> there, there. On top of a reference, there's there's a lot of hard sci-fi elements yes. in this show about young women bouncing around and believing in themselves. Yes, um, there's there's so much like hard like kind of hard sci-fi in this that like at the end of episodes they would have a science lesson where little kind of like chibi versions of Noriko and and Kazumi would show up and would explain like in-world concepts like how do the space how does like hyperspace work how does uh the space monsters work all this kind of stuff um uh, I believe the start of Episode three has like a literal like dissertation by Kazumi about like one of these concepts that plays over top of it. Like it's just as if you're reading like a a report, an essay that she had written. Um, Yeah, they uh, they put yeah, they put in a lot of background work that they did not need to do. Yes. uh, um, For this. And and when it comes to like the animation and stuff like that, there's a lot of very clear sort of tokusatsu influence as well like obviously i mentioned the common rider stuff but um there's shots of like space fighters about to launch to go and fight the the space monsters and shots of the separated gunbuster as buster machine one and two like getting ready to launch into outer space that look a lot like you know shots you would see in like ultraman or or thunderbirds that that old uh like puppet animated show where they would just have like you know the models on strings flying around that kind of stuff, but they look exactly like those kind of shots, just animated as opposed to like live action miniatures. Um, like there's just so much love and detail in a lot of this stuff. Um, episode five has a lot of what I would call Shin Godzilla vibes. Um, you can I rewatching this after watching Shin Godzilla. Um, that's like the first thing that popped in my mind just because of the way that Ano handles introducing characters, especially when there's a lot of characters being, being introduced at once. Um, where it's like these big boardrooms full of like military officials and, and politicians and stuff like that. And they're discussing all these different sort of plans. And it's just, he just pops these big old labels onto the screen. It's like, this is this person. He's the, the chief of this particular division. Like this is this person. They're like the general of like, this particular part of the military, that kind of stuff. Um, that's just kind of real, a real shorthand to get you through like, Hey, who is this person? Cause you're probably only ever going to see them once, but you want to know like who they are and why they're talking in the scene. Like who, well, like why are they so important that they get their own shot and just pop it up on the screen, get them out there real quick. And then you just never have to see them again, but you, you understand what is going on. Um, and, yeah, Ano Ano does people sitting Ano does a group of people sitting at a table and talking so well. Whether mm-hmm. they be there or just weird pillars. Yeah. Um it's it, it's early on one of his trademarks, for sure. Yes. 
there's a lot of like really, he makes the shots always very interesting too. Like it's never just like a straight on shot of somebody. It's always like as if somebody was walking around with like an actual camera trying to get mm-hmm. like good like dramatic sorts of shots. Like you know you're looking up through like over like two people's shoulders at the third person that's like across the table as they're like standing up and talking that kind of stuff. Like it's it's always and. People sitting around a desk talking always looks exciting when it comes to Hideaki Anno. And Yeah, and again, it's so wild for someone who is more, at least with an animation, is more mechanically focused. Yes. So it's, yeah, it's, man, no one really thinks about that from him, but he's the best. Yeah, he is definitely showing his chops with this this first directing role. Um, and then... Uh, Episode six actually has this conversation that I kind of alluded to in our, our Nausicaa episode where uh, Kazumi is talking to another young officer um, as she is going to board the, the black hole bomb so they can move it to the center of the galaxy. Um, and they have this conversation about whether or not destroying the galaxy to save humanity or simply allowing humanity to die out is better. Like, what is the the right thing to do? And this sort of this discussion that happens in this episode really feels like sort of Ano's take on Miyazaki's philosophy of like nature versus humanity. That that sort of conversation just really kind of struck me, especially if you're talking about how like Miyazaki's very ecological minded um, thought processes. This this kind of feels like. Ano's much more sort of, like I said, kind of edgier or or um, maybe a little bit more like, I don't want to say nihilistic, but a little bit kind of leaning more in that direction kind of take on on that. Like humanity would rather destroy everything else in the galaxy than let itself go out because it thinks itself that important. That kind of feels like what he's he's trying to get to in this conversation. But then we, we, we move on past that. Um, There's. There's a in that conversation there is a weird I feel like it's kind of a meta line to it mm. uh and, and it makes me laugh not because of what she says um but you know Onisama she uh the, the other per, the other officer is like oh we should ju- if it's our fate we should just go you know the universe mm-hmm. clearly the, these monsters are from our <laughs> from the discussion in that boardroom it's like oh yeah the universe designed these to uh destroy anything it doesn't want i.e us mm-hmm. and, and he's like oh yeah let's oh yeah we should just go with it and she says a line where it's is suicide a good ending and i don't know from a metatextual context mm-hmm. it feels like the it feels like the writer and makers like um is that a good ending should we yeah, do that? Yeah. Does that make sense? And it's like, uh, no, but yeah. Um, but yeah, in that instance, it, I sort of got more of a, again, a more of a humanist mm-hmm. fight for, you know, we, it's, it's our right to fight, um, to, to keep going until the end. And that's really in, you know, guts and hard work, mm-hmm. uh, the culmination of that. But yeah, at the expense of the, at the expense of the middle of the universe, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, it's 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 a rough final episode. Um, which, speaking of, there's. I know I kind of put this down as sort of like a running theme in Anno's early works, but it's not. We'll have to say when we get through like Nadia. But the 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 final episode, episode six, has a significant portion that is just almost entirely penciled storyboards with some music over it, 
acting out like this humongous battle, uh, which you know coming on with like like getting to like Evangelion, where like the final episodes of the original run are much more sort of abstract and not entirely animated. There's a lot of just like pencil sketches and stuff like that for portions of it. It feels like they're kind of running out of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the entire episode is in like black and white, except for the very, very end. Um, it feels like they are trying to stretch as much as they can with their, their budget. It's yeah. The final episode is not just visually so different from the rest of the series. It's totally, Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't f- really follow Noriko uh, throughout yeah. a lot of the episode. Um, it, I, I think maybe both because uh, yeah. they do. They go into a widescreen format uh, for for an original four three distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, black and white coloring animations, black and white to me feels harder. <laughs> yeah, especially from from a hand drawn perspective. Maybe it's not. It just I feel like it's easy to mess up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, um, but it's and I, I'm not just being con- contrary, but like I saw the 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 sort of still frame in the sketches for that last mm-hmm. big battle. That was just hey, we have to defend, we have to defend Gunbuster, right? We have to make sure Gunbuster can and the giant Jupiter bomb uh, can go off as planned. Cause there, yeah. of course there are issues. They can't just fight. They, it doesn't, everything doesn't go smoothly. So they have to fight off the aliens. So that sort of felt like that, um, that battle was not the important thing, right? Yeah. So we don't need to focus too much on it. I mean, I'm sure it's a, it, again, guarantee it's a cost saving and time saving. Yeah. Yeah. Factor, but they do it very well to where mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. No, I, 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 yes, I see exactly what you mean. And like, there's there's some good bits in 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 that uh those like single shots just like the the strangely just like World War Two World War One sort of like here's this mecha with like a group of its its compatriots like charging over a hill with a flag yeah shots <laughs> what does a mecha have a flag in space <laughs> yeah oh um, there's shots of like planets like exploding and stuff it's 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 nuts. But um, and yeah, and then speaking about like that that widescreen format, um, when you watch the movie because it's you know remastered in like the late two thousands or the mid to late two thousand, it's on Blu Ray. Um, you watch the you know what would be the first like five episodes in sort of a pillar box four three format, and then when you get to the what would be the sixth episode, it becomes full screen, full widescreen, as opposed to the, the letterbox format that you would get on the original, like, DVD release. And, like, that's actually, like, to me, that is really, really cool because it suddenly becomes, it goes from that 4.3 to that 16.9 uh, sort of transition, and it's very cool, and it feels like, oh, this is really big, this is really important, and, oh, it's all in, like, black and white for some reason. I'm yeah I'm I'm also a sucker for a format change yes, for an aspect yes. ratio change love it yeah um, so just to, to run through some stuff real quick the the major production staff for it um, so the original story and screenplay was actually by Toshio Okada so the Otokeng himself he the, the original story um, Hideaki Anno would actually work on the screenplay for episodes five and six um, which I think kind of explains why they are so much more 
dramatic and and heartfelt than some of the earlier episodes. Um, they those last two also deal more with the non again I, I, again I think humanist, but also separated or self-imposed and like you said edgy because mm-hmm. uh, those last two episodes don't really deal with too much with the interpersonal relationship unless it's heartbreak yeah um, the uh, the first four the first four really are about the the two big relationships or the, mm-hmm. the relationships among like you get all those new characters yes in, in those like every episodes. episode introduces a character yeah and I was like no no we're gonna play with what we have here and mm-hmm. it's how time dilation sucks. Um, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Um, so the Ano obviously also directed it. Um, the storyboards and setting were by Shinji, Higudu- Shinji Higuchi and Hideaki Ano, uh, with the music by Kohei Tanka. I think I think I spelled that. Yes. Uh, the music is by Kohei Tanaka. The music is. Uh, the music has this. At least to me, this great way of really affecting the scene. I mean, obviously, in like everything, like animated and film and all that stuff, music is incredibly important. But there's just something about the very like extremely like melodramatic music in this uh, this series that just always really hits me whenever like something happens and that big old piano comes in. Mm-hmm. It gets me. Every time is always just like this big emotional gut punch. It's so good, and and Kohei Tanaka just absolutely kills it. Um, yeah, it's so people want to give melodrama a bad name sometimes, mm-hmm. but it like, but it's still going because it works. Because like yeah. sometimes you have to have like the big over exaggerated emotion. I think it plays off better in animation for mm-hmm. sure because uh, there is that. You don't see humans acting unnaturally. And within the context of it, I think it's easier to get away with. But like, yeah, yeah those big emotional pieces. Uh, again, we'll get we'll get into <laughs> yeah. we'll get through this. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is one of the, like, the, the really big impo- important uh, core production people. The, on the cast side, uh, Nor- Noriko Takeya is played by Noriko Hidaka. Um probably known best for playing Akane Tendo and Ranma one half, uh, Kikyo and Inuyasha. And I put this one in just for you, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, she's uh, Subame's mother and keep your hands off Isaac. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe she was like 26 at the time of recording Noriko originally. And she, between then and the gumbus in the movie, when she had to re-record lines, it's, it's spot on. It's absolutely perfect. She can belt out one of those big, hardworking gut screams. It's it's so good. Um, uh, Super May's mother and father uh, in Isaac Ken are both actors, hmm. uh, and they so there's an arc of Super May wanting to be an animator, even though she is a model, uh-huh. and her family wants to get her to to follow the family business. So that's cool. That that's cool that they got someone like that to nice. to come in and nice. play that role. Um, Kazumi Amano is played by Rei Sakuma, who also played Shampoo in Rama One Half. Uh, she would also play Nina Purpleton in Gundam 0083. That's Stardust Memory. Um, and Gigi and Kiki's Delivery Service. Yeah, Phil Hartman. Yeah. 
It's a quite a shift there. <laughs> yeah, they heard that and like, you know what, Phil Hartman. Yeah. Um, Koichiro Coach Ota uh, is played by the illustrious Norio Wakamoto, mm-hmm. um, who I think if you've heard Norio Wakamoto, you know it's Norio Wakamoto. Um, he has a very unique sort of voice and delivery. Uh, but he played Vicious and Cowboy Bebop. Um, Dracula and Castlevania Symphony of the Night and Cell in Dragon Ball Z. Um, an absolutely wonderful role for him to play, I think. Young Freud is played by Maria Kawamura, uh, who played Naga the Serpent in Slayers uh, and Quest Pariah in Char's Counterattack. Um, and then Smith Torin is played by Kazuki Yao, uh, who plays Frankie in One Piece. Uh, and then I... I put this backwards. Uh, he played <laughs> Judo Ashta in Gundam Double Zeta. Um, and the neat thing about Smith Torin is that he is a real person. What? Uh, so he is named for Torin Smith, uh, founder of Studio Proteus, which is an American-based uh, manga import and translation company. Um, Torin would actually stay in the Gynax apartment for a while. Um, and there's some hilarious bits in the, the Nonteki memoirs about that. Um, he would, uh, here we go. Uh, Torn would go on to be a success in his own right, later returning to North America and becoming a president of a publishing company in the U.S. He is one shrewd fellow. Not only did he make plenty of manga-related connections while he was here, but he snagged himself a beautiful Japanese wife to boot. I still remember one morning, shortly after we woke up, the door to Torrin's room opened up and out walked a young lady we'd never seen before. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the thing to know is that Torrin's room, air quotes, was a walk-in closet. (laughs) (laughs) Damn! That's how, like, stacked up they were in this apartment. Uh, I thought you were going to say that's how smooth Torrin Smith was. I mean, that's also how smooth Torrin was, yes. Um... He's got that uh, for it. He's got that look. Look, I melt when I hear a British accent, okay? Mm-hmm. I get there. There's an appeal. Uh, so he was, uh, he was Canadian. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away in 2013. Oh. But uh, yeah, he's like an incredibly like big and important part of uh, bringing manga and, and animation to the West, it feels like. Um, a Canadian accent is still good. Yeah, I'll take. I'll still take that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah R.I.P. Uh, the entire soundtrack by uh, Kohei Tanaka is available on Spotify, uh, including the opening, closing, and and middle like pop tracks that are in there. Which "Fly High" that plays in episode five is an absolute jam. It's a oh, pop. Oh yeah. Uh, I feel like that. Uh, combining sequence is probably it feels like an early amv almost it's like all time <laughs> to the music and everything it's so good uh so yeah that's that's like all of what i got i think it's time for some discussion uh yeah so this is this is my first time watching Gunbuster. uh you had you had clearly seen it before <laughs> yes Yes, I had. Um, so, yes, like, yes. I had been aware when in the early 2000s, I had been aware of Gunbuster just through like forums and stuff like that. And then I eventually managed to, I managed to actually get, I think, like in 2009 or 2010, it was somewhere around there, a the the DVD 
box set. Um, I found it in a Suncoast video. Yeah, where where all the anime is. Yes, um, I was incredibly lucky. It's a little beat up, but uh, it's it had been a while since I had watched it, and then with some stuff going on, uh, I decided to pick it back up because I think we think we were talking about watching it. And I was like, man, I haven't watched Gunbuster in ages. Let me go watch Gunbuster. So I'd I've actually watched it like three times in the past like four months or something like that oh wow yeah um and i'd kind of forgotten how hard gunbuster hits me personally and i definitely think it's probably like my one of my top two like ovas and it's probably definitely in like my top five like anime series now that's just like being reminded of how much i love gunbuster (laughs) Uh-oh. Well, the things I think it does well, uh, and we've touched on a little bit, is again, it's that very goofy genre. Let's try and get people in to the seats. Yeah, S- sort of first episode where it's like, look, it's an all-girls school. They're in very eighties fitness, you know, high cut mm-hmm. uh, onesies, one onesie yeah. bikinis. Yeah, um, there's there's jiggle. Um, well, we're in, you know, in mechs. So it's like, okay, we're getting everyone into it. But then mm-hmm. it's just turning, even in episode two, just a drastic turn of, okay, here's the big, here are the concepts we're introducing. It's Noriko having to deal with the loss of her father, uh, having the hope of maybe finding him ripped away from her while also dealing with, uh, yeah, if you're in this program, you have to deal with time dilation and everyone on earth is going to, is going to change. Like, there's definitely, like, I don't think we mentioned it, but there's definitely influence from the Forever War hmm. in here, yes. which which I've not read, but my understanding is just a soldier keeps getting sent out and there's time dilation and they get to watch the Earth change over generation, over thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like, the main character becomes a general for, even though he's only been on, like, two, three missions just because yeah. he's he's lived longer than anyone else Mm -hmm. technically yeah Um, like uh the time dilation they they call it the rip van winkle effect in the series but the time dilation hits really hard emotionally and like i think i've discovered that time dilation is a very easy way to get me emotional (laughs) um how much how much did you cry at interstellar so the scene where he puts in like the tapes yeah, of yeah. his kids, he's watching all the those messages after ten like, minutes. Yeah, that fucks me up every time. Like there's, I there's a lot of like very valid criticisms for Interstellar, but there are definitely parts of it that, especially like that scene, like that scene we we're just talking about, that are really affecting to me personally. Like. Do you, I, I don't want to get out of this emotional pocket, but I think the time to ask is now. We know Christopher Nolan uh-huh. is an anime fan. Yes. Stole, stole sh- premises and shots uh-huh. uh, from Paprika for um, Inception. There we go. That's the name of that movie. Get, uh-huh. uh, get easier names, Nolan. <laughs> um, it, and I, I don't think he... I think he came on the Interstellar. I think it was originally a Spielberg joint. But... Do you think he's a Gunbuster fan? <laughs> I mean, Spielberg also anime fan. That's true. Like he likes himself some Lupin the Third, apparently. So maybe, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe. Like I, I it, think 
I think it's such a a concept that you can do a lot with, and that can be like just the concept of you not being around to see the people that you have known and loved changing and growing and going on without you, and you, you coming back almost entirely unchanged is such a strong emotional concept that I think even if whether or not Nolan was influenced by Gus, Gunbuster. I think that is such a pervasive sort of concept idea that it's you it, it's it's something you can arrive at without being influenced by one thing or the another or it's it's such a long concept too because I mean you know Rip Van Winkle and Urashima Taro which mm-hmm. we talked about last season which if you listen to what's actually being said you can clearly hear coach say Urashima Taro when he talks about you'll turn into Rip Van Winkle if you don't make it back in time. Um, like that sort of concept, that being displaced out of time, that sort of growing past the people that you knew. It's just been a concept that's been around forever, basically. I think so long as as humanity has has had a thought in its head, that has been sort of a, <laughs> a thing that we have arrived at, is that, hey, we love these people and we care about these people. And it is painful to be without them uh, or to be away from them and have them change and then become not the people that you knew anymore. Interstellar does have mechs. Interstellar <laughs> does have mechs. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, it's... Yeah, I agree. It's it's a universal concept uh, yes. that can be changed and adapted in uh, a bunch of different ways. And Gunbuster, for being episodic, it seems like... After that second episode, it's such a major plot point mm-hmm. within each episode. And there are always – what I think they do well is that there are always stakes behind it. Mm-hmm. It's like in episode five, uh, we find out that Coach has the space cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, well, we have to do this mission and this will hopefully end the war. Um, but Coach might be dead. You're lo- you know, uh, Onisama never got to say she loved him. Um, and if, when they come back, he might be dead. And so, you know, that sort of, there's always these big emotional stakes to it. It's like, you can do this, but you're going to miss this. And sometimes it's just like, hopefully you'll get back for, so we can have a birthday together. It's like, nope, you did it. (laughs) Sorry. It's yeah. Like the first time we see it, it's, it's exactly like you say, they go to, they go to find the ship that is, is hurtling through at like light speed. And it turns out it's the ship that. Noriko's father was on, and it's like it's only been like five minutes since the disaster. Maybe he's still here. Maybe he's still alive. And then it just gets ripped away from her. Then and that rawness then gets just further escalated in the fact that she gets back and she's like a little late for her own birthday and for Young Freud's birthday because they have the same birthday. Um, and then it just escalates from there. Like they spend so much time in time dilation that when they finally get back, like uh, Noriko's best friend, Kimiko is now like a 27 year old adult woman with a child. And like, I think those, especially pretty much any of the scenes where it's Noriko and Kimiko. uh, God, I hope I am. It is Kimiko, right? Yes. I'm so bad at names. Yes. Kimiko, Kimiko Higuchi. Okay. I'm just now remembering all the Gynax members and can recognize them. I'm- yes. Uh, Kimiko, like, whenever 
the scenes that probably hit me the hardest are the ones where it's Kimiko and Noriko interacting with each other. Um, whether they're interacting with each other directly, like when they're reunited, or when they're acting indirectly, like at the very end of the series where... Oh, I'm getting emotional. Where Noriko apologizes for not being able to get back to her in time, and then we cut to Kimiko and her daughter on Earth, and Kimiko says, I thought I heard somebody. I thought I heard Noriko. Uh, it, it it really just, it messes me up. Like, there's there's just something about it that uh, I can't, I can't not get sniffly, at least. Um, and then, you know, to kind of capstone all of that, them getting back and they're not sure if they made it. Again, spoilers. Yeah, they they blew up the center of the universe uh, mm-hmm. or the galaxy. Uh, they're like, well, it's going to be like, we won't get back to Earth for 12,000 years. Let's see what happened. Yeah. And they get back and Earth is completely dark. They can't see anything. They're not sure where certain places are anymore. Like, uh, they both mention, like, I, like, I think this is where Okinawa used to be. Because there's there's talks earlier in the episode about how like there's so much going on that has shifted gravitational forces and knocked like the Earth into a different axis and has flooded parts of like Australia. Um, we see the all girls school that they were at, the new annex for it, and if you look very closely, especially especially easier to see on like the movie version where it's everything's nice and high def. Uh, you can see part of the old school underwater just like sticking mm-hmm. up out of the water so things have changed a whole lot and they're talking about they, they get back 12,000 years later and they're not sure what what has happened if it was all worth it if all this time if they're the only people left in the universe that kind of deal um, and then the earth lights up with this big uh, welcome back it's it's I think it's okay which is the Japanese phrase for welcome back or welcome home and it's just this big glowing letters characters on the planet and it's they haven't been forgotten earth has remembered them and what they did and they've waited all this time to to welcome them home these people that saved humanity and allowed them to go on um and that's just it's it's really kind of this bittersweet thing that the they're not able to see all the people that they grew up with and loved and everything, but they are still remembered and cared about. Uh, it's such, it's such a good ending. And, um, I'm, I'm wearing my shirt that has that shot on it right now because I absolutely love it. (laughs) And it also glows in the dark. (laughs) They, they did, they did get me. I'm like, Oh no, is it going to be the downer ending? Uh huh. Where it's like, well, it, where it's, and and you could see Anno going that direction where it's like, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Humanity's doomed. It's your efforts were pointless. You're coming back to a. You're the last two humans. Mm-hmm. Enjoy your dead rock. Um, but yeah, such a yeah, such a wonderful ending. My my sort of big hit was in the Smith Torin episode mm. where it's it's really Noriko's first time going out into battle. Yeah. And she just complete, completely freezing, unable to back up Smith Torin, uh, and that's mm-hmm. why he loses. That's part of why he loses his life and the guilt from that. But just 
I think this is the indecision with battle, within battle, uh, especially when it's child soldiers. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess in this instance, maybe not. <sighs> I mean, maybe so. They do, they do in the show, tangent, in the show they do talk about how like, Noriko is like an otaku, and she still acts like she does in uh, her late teens. Uh-huh. Um, there's a Nausicaa poster in her bunk, and it's like <laughs> there's uh, <laughs> there's a a Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies poster on her wall in the final episode. Which spoilers, uh, Otto also worked on Grave of the Fireflies as an animated, <laughs> <laughs> but in anime, especially in this militaristic mecha genre there's uh, and i think this comes from and i feel like this comes from macross where it's this indecision and this freezing and this ptsd mm-hmm. before we had a term for it mm-hmm. sort of idea that comes across that i mean you know you see it in oh you see it up and down and evangelion where it's like no piling in a mech sucks it sucks so hard you are literally in the military and being in the military sucks mm-hmm. and it and it and it messes you up and on top of well this person who you met who you know your first love kind of, you know your schoolyard crush uh-huh. is dead because of you because you weren't able to do the thing that you have been training to do and of course it pushes her along the path yeah. but in the show during that whole scene we are just in her cockpit yeah we don't really see we don't see what happens to him uh we just see monitors and meters uh-huh yes like we don't even uh, see the aliens they're they're too fast yeah i was, I was just gonna say like 90 percent of that scene is like just noriko's view through like her monitor <laughs> and i think that's also we'll we'll discover that's also when i think that's an anoism i think he's very good at giving the audience a subjective view mm-hmm. of the character and expri- being able to visually show uh, the internal struggle uh, mm-hmm. uh, of characters in again in a in a in a booby mecha cartoon. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, and I, I love the the sort of kind of setup and payoff that goes in like those first three episodes where Noriko talks about how she can't do like two things at the same time, basically. Um, having to like look at the monitor and like move the levers and switches and all that stuff to, to move the mecha around. Like she's really not good at it. She, that's not how she, her brain operates and she does get better at it, but it's still, it's still not enough, especially once she gets to that, that moment with Smith and her first deployment. Um, and then we see that when she's training to work the gunbuster, when she gets the gunbuster, it's no longer like a bunch of levers and stuff like that that you just kind of move your arms back and forth a lot to to get them to do stuff. Um, it's this sort of motion tracking sort of cockpit that unlocks her potential because now she can just do the motions and it'll happen. And I think that's that's just a really kind of neat kind of payoff that like, oh, no, she can, really can do this. She just needs to be given the tools that allows her to unlock her potential. And there are, she has all these different moves that she calls out. Yes. <laughs> because of course. Oh man. So, um, I don't know. I guess it, it probably would have shown up in some of the art books and stuff like that. But, uh, you get to see like the gumbus apparently has 
a buttload more stuff it can do than what we see in this series because uh, especially shown off in the the Super Robot Wars series of games where Gunbuster shows up a lot, but that bad boy has like giant baseball bats and axes Whoa. and stuff. Yes, uh, I actually have a Gunbuster model that I got fairly recently. Um, it's very cool, uh, and yes, it does come with arms that cross, so you can do the pose. Yeah, but hold on, you know, holding. Yes, so it has like. A, a set of like double bladed battle axes that it has two of them that you can like lock together into like this big sort of super massive weapon. And it's, it's yeah, the, the, the full potential of the gunbuster is absolutely crazy. It's a shame. We never actually got to see all of it. Um, but yeah, she totally just does like all sorts of attack calls out the, the buster beam, the, the, the Inazuma kick, all that stuff. Yeah, it's 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 such a cool mecha, and it's so fucking big. It's gigantic. The model, or just in general, uh, Gunbusters both. <laughs> both. The model is very big, and it comes it comes with a tiny little RX seven, like the little like the first ones, mm-hmm. the first mecha we see. It comes with one of those that you can actually put in its hand. Oh, and then yeah, in like the show, we see it like land on Earth and like. It gets me every time (laughs) (laughs) where it lowers its hand to like the roof of the hospital where coach is staying. And then just like a little door opens in its hand that they walk out of. I think that's so fucking hilarious. Yeah, it's (laughs) it is a giant mech just at the landing on a mountain. It's 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 insane. Which Um, uh, the hospital is in Hakone, which becomes Tokyo 3 in Evangelion. mm -hmm. Yeah, this. Hold on. You could. There are. I mean, there are obvious connections between this and Evangelion uh, thematically. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's some sort of fan theory video where we talk about how this is a prequel. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or a sequel. I don't know. I don't know. The depending on the t- or the alternate times. So there's connections to Evangelion to it. Um, and you see Anno's. He gets the. Sh- it breaks my heart uh, when when you when you found the the little tidbit about him agonizing over whether or not to apply to be the director. Because mm-hmm. that I mean again that comes from uh, his, his mental health issues, uh, yeah. anxiety, and just having conf- You know, again, even at that age, and even now, uh, just having confidence in yourself. Where it's like, no, you could do. Yeah, clearly, you did it, and you could do it. Mm-hmm. And and it's so cool. That we get, we've seen pieces of Anno, and we're starting to see him, Anno himself, through through yeah. these works. And it's just, again, just such amazing talent. Uh, I think at this point he is eighty eight. He entered. He was born so twenty eight, nineteen sixty. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you know, almost getting the third, getting more confidence. It, it's it's cool to see. Um, I'm kind of rambling, uh, but. I think my other big thing, and we might discover this later as we go along, is the military influence, mm-hmm. uh, which I feel is, and honestly, this is just coming from a Taku no video. Uh, it feels like during this time within a toka, within a Taku culture, there is a big military fetish, fetishizing, a fetish, a fetishizing of the military. Uh huh. Um, which I think is is prominent through this and like some of the earlier work, 
but it seems like he gets when we get to Shin Godzilla. I think he, he's definitely past that. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe finds it sooner. Uh, I'm just, I don't know what my big point is, but I'm curious to see when that switch happens. Cause it's still, it's kind of there at Evangelion. I think he still likes people in a room looking at screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but nerve is definitely a, 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 we can't, can't talk too much about this mm-hmm. per, per our contract, but nerve is definitely <laughs> like anti-government anti mil it's it's militaristic while also being anti militaristic. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah, and I, I, I can see what you mean. It is built like a military organization, but it is in opposition to in a way, in opposition to the Japanese government and the Japanese military in the setting. But I'm that they, they just kind of exploit it for their their own needs and ends in the show. So yeah, I'm um, I'm curious when that if I'm curious if there's a through line of this or if we'll what I, I guess I'm setting I'm 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 Chekhov's gunning us mm-hmm. uh, we'll I'm, see if that gun goes off in the final act. yeah 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 that because it's yeah we'll see I, I don't know what this what we'll discover which is again part of the fun of doing this we don't we're learning in real time with along yes. with y'all yes so we will we, we'll, we'll see what happens learning and forming ideas and all that good stuff as we go, we are flying by the seat of our pants. <laughs> um, but yeah, anything else on Gunbuster that you want to bring um, up? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love the show. Like I said, it's very personally affecting. Um, I totally understand not liking certain aspects of it, especially nowadays, as there's a lot of there's a lot of boob um, and and dubious there, ages. There is. There is boob in the final dramatic moment. Yes. When Gunbuster literally rips its heart out to save the the human race, which is from a melodramatic drama aspect, like chef's kiss. That's so yes. great. But Noriko does rip her shirt yes. to, to do I, it. I think, man, I think I would feel a lot better about the show, at least that kind of aspect of the show nowadays, if that was like the only exposed breast in the series is that that final like emotional moment she has to get the the metal plating off the front of the gun buster so she she tears her own clothing and all that but that that would hit so hard yes yeah you're right Um, oh but but yes there's i mean the show was made in the late 80s is very much that horny boy crowd Uh, again an ova so it's sort of expected Yes, uh, to that degree, can. the same. Like, uh, I think about uh, Perfect Blue, mm-hmm. and uh, and Satoshi Kon. He will in later interviews. He's like, "Yeah, I goofed. Uh, I shouldn't have gone." Uh, in Perfect Blue, there is a simulated, there's simulated sexual assault, which is it's animated real. Um, mm-hmm. And he regrets it, but again, he's like, "Well, this was supposed to be an OVA. It was never supposed to have a theatrical release, which it ended up having." Mm-hmm. And so it's there are mar- again there are, commercial art isn't just a story of how you know what the artist and director's vision was it's also the story of like how market forces and money mm-hmm. and trying to make a commodity um influences that art um, yeah like Okada says it's it's gunbuster is supposed to be a commodity it's something that they are making 
or at least originally, it was something that they were making so that they could raise some money so they can do more stuff, which, I mean, what's going to play to that crowd? A bunch of, you know, teenage girls bouncing around and their giant robots. But Otto comes in and is like, hey, check this shit out. Emotions. <laughs> well, that's the... um, And again, it reminds me of why I love genre film mm-hmm. and like... Uh, exploitation film and it, when it's done when you raise it up when it's like uh, for instance Jack Hill uh, legendary uh, exploitation director directed Jackie Brown Coffee um, he would get assignments you know 60s 70s it was very much a like we need a film with these elements go make and they didn't really care what happened so like Jack Hill made this movie called Switchblade Sisters, which is just a girl gang movie. And that's all he had to do. Mm-hmm. It's like, we need girls and like a gay, they need to be tough broads and, and they need to, you know, f- fight. It's like, cool. I'm going to base it off a Shakespeare play. I forget which one. <laughs> so like in that instance of like, yes, because this is an OVA and we're appealing to a certain crowd, it has to have certain elements and it does in spades. But like you said, Anno like comes in and like, no, we're going to elevate this bad boy. We're going to actually tell and make it a story and make it something that like, again, has lasted beyond just being the thing that gets sold in video stores for a few months. And I think, and like, I think that's, that's wonderful to do You're saying you're taking the risk. It's always cool to see where you're taking the restrictions. Although I don't know if Anno saw these as restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure he was, uh, who knows? Um, but it was like taking your limitations and then elevating it, uh, despite, despite those placements that are on you. Cause Anno, Anno could have definitely like, ah, eh, you know what? There's aliens and they fight the end and then we win, you know, could have no one. I don't think anyone would have like cared if it was just yeah. a sort of standard mech versus yeah. alien story. And then yeah, like, it could just be another thing that's like, Oh, Hey, you hear this weird old anime. And but no, it's very like I said, it's one of my favorite OVAs. It's one of my favorite anime. And it's I think it's one of the few things that can consistently get me really emotional. Oh, man. Like every time I watch it, like I get I mean, I get a little sniffly at least every time I can't not. And again, I think it's it's props to Ano. Props to uh, Kohei Tanaka. Uh, they, like, I think, especially their his direction and the music that goes with a lot of these scenes, it's just, again, it, it knocks it out of the park for me. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and honestly, thank you. You've, this episode, you've really done the, the lion's share of the research. Yeah. And you've got I'm a lot like, of, yeah, you, <laughs> your passion's I, clear. Yes. Yes. I, when we were talking about doing, well, I think, even when we were talking about doing the show as a whole, I think Gunbuster was always kind of on my lip. Six episode OVA series, we could have easily done, you know, an episode by episode kind of thing for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we kind of came to the decision to do Anna, I was like, yes, yes, I get to talk about Gunbuster. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's yes, I, I again, uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Oh, for sure, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, 
And, you know, I'm hoping that people out there listening to this will definitely go check out at least the movie. The movie is very good. The movie is, you know, there's there's a few issues, like I said, where certain characters will just kind of show up and you're expected to have sort of this emotional like connection to them just because of the way that it was produced originally that you don't quite get with some of those. But the core story with like Noriko, uh, Onesama and and Coach is still mostly intact and it's still really, really affecting. And like I said, like the last episodes five and six are pretty much like unaltered for the most part in the movie. Those are like the really big emotional beats. I think, I mean, aside from the, the stuff with Smith, but those are the big, like really emotional, heavy episodes. So those are intact in the, the film version. And you get the nice, clean HD version of it. It looks pretty. <laughs> I really, I, God, I wish they would do, they would release Blu-rays of the individual episodes over here, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime. Well, I, who knows? Maybe, yeah. look, if we get enough listeners, I'm sure... Bandai yes. will, will hear our cries. Yes, hopefully. Um, we'll be the ones that bring it in. God, there's 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 so much going on, like, between, like, Gynax, Bandai, any sort of, like, yeah, yeah. all that stuff that getting those over here, whew, it's going to be a, 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 a king's feat. Uh, uh, a, a Robotech situation? Yes. Oh, my God, yes. Um, so, one more thing I just want to touch on real quick, because I don't think we're going to get to it really in this series i think mm-hmm. we might have to if we do like maybe a, a more gynax focused thing we might come come to it but uh as i mentioned with the movies there is a sequel series to this called aim for the top two die buster um it also got a movie like condensed version and it is a again a six episode ova series produced in 2004 for gynax's 20th anniversary um and it's it's very different, but it is still an incredibly good OVA series. Um, it is a sequel to Gunbuster um, in some very interesting and unique ways that I will say, uh, especially like the last episode, is also equally emotionally affecting to me. <laughs> like Gunbuster and Diebuster are incredible. Um, and uh, with Diebuster, uh, Diebuster is actually available um as its own individual um episodes i believe through like crunchyroll and uh ver so you can actually get all of those individual episodes by themselves yes and and um i do believe that ano actually did work on it a little bit because this would have been right before he left gynax to go for studio kara which we eventually get to um but he did do some animation it is also very good so if you liked gunbuster and you want something that's a little bit more modern a little bit more over the top uh, aim for the top Oh, well, I mean, I, nothing else needs to be said. Then. Yes. However you can, check this out. I don't think yes. you'll be disappointed in any way. Um, but thank you all for, for hanging out, listening to us. Um, we Again, since we're doing these things uh, less often now, we're super bad at checking emails. Uh, <laughs> but James, uh, if you remember, if you listened to the tail end of our Cowboy Bebop episode, James wrote into us uh, and they wrote into us again. Uh, They just finished up the series of Cowboy Bebop. They have a few uh, additions for that. Uh, So first they write, speaking of Cowboy Bebop, 
a rare reference I caught in the show that I don't think you all mentioned in. In Wild Horses, which prominently features background chatter about baseball, the pirates giving the crew trouble are named George, Harmon, and Ruth, clearly named after George Herman, the babe, Ruth. (laughs) I think, yeah, we did miss that. And a question for you all. Is the short and somewhat abruptly ended run of Cowboy Bebop typical of anime? I've now seen two anime series, Cowboy Bebop and Evangelion, and I thought they followed a surprisingly similar trajectory. They take longer than I would have expected to establish all the characters. Then from like episode 7 through episode 19 or 20 are generally great and fun and interesting. But then suddenly the series gets wrapped up in a way that felt abrupt and unsatisfying. Bebop, much less so than Evangelion, but still, Spike's backstory and Vicious and Julia were nowhere near as interesting to me as the show seemed to want them to be. Yeah, he's on my side. Mm -hmm. Um, Are these two series both so beloved in part because they leave fans with some feeling of unfulfilled promise, ending too soon rather than going too long? Or is this actually a fairly typical arc for anime because of business constraints or just the nature of the genre? Is there a series as well-regarded as these that lasts like three or four seasons and tells a reasonably complete story of consistent quality? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's uh, – oh, that's, that's a very big question. Very big question. Um, so I, I – While you're thinking, I, uh-huh. I think I can – I think we can say that um, Cowboy Bebop and Evangelion, uh, they did not wear out their welcome. Yes. And I, and I think that is sort of part of an appeal within media. You don't want to stay too long. Um, and that is just... And my understanding, both of those cancellations were uh, station mandated. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that was... Yeah. So, that was just like, they didn't want any more episodes, even though Evangelion made more money than God, but... Mm-hmm. And continues to. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, that's... We'll get into it at some point, but Anna was also going through some stuff. Yes. Towards the end um, of Evangelion, which did not help. Um, as far as if it's typical? Um, I mean... Ca- for for original of? for original anime? <sighs> like, the, the whole... I will say this about at least my experience with an anime, is that it is very much like... It's different from Western television where western television they're like you got to give us all the characters episode one and we got to know everyone's deal uh-huh. uh where in anime it's very much and i think it's again from a manga influence i, I could be talking about it on my ass but typically it's a drip feed of characters i mean we just talked about it in a gun buster mm-hmm. um but um but yeah as far as being tip yeah i think i'm with you it's like kind of kind of like a lot of a lot of shows will do end what would feel fairly abruptly, but I think it's also because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of denouement in in your your anime. I feel I feel like they will get to the end of the story, and it still feels like there's like there's still an openness to the ending, but they don't ever continue on to that. They just kind of get to the end, the climax. Some stuff happens. There's like a little bit of a wrap up, and then that's typically it. Um, and you know, I mean, endings, endings and anything are, are difficult, um, be it anime or film or, or books. Endings can be, can be fairly difficult to pull off well. And I think they just kind of do with what the best that they can. And then anime studios are like any other business. They're constantly trying to make money to move on to the next thing. Um, so yeah, so I think that that's kind of, 
the general nature of it. I do think uh, when it comes to like long series, like if you when you get into like your shonen anime, that kind of stuff, um, the stuff that would be more than like one season, kind of. That's the other thing. I think for a very long time, uh, seasons in anime weren't really a thing. They would just kind of go until they're done. Um, I think the seasons thing has been a more recent sort of concept and a welcome change. Yes, for for the for the quality of life for the animators. Um, I think uh, what do we call it? Uh, I think with like My Hero, that's like the first time I really remember hearing people talk about like a season mm-hmm. of an anime. As opposed to just like, oh, here's the show and it's going and it's going and it's going and it's going. But yeah, I don't know if I've run into any series that is as well regarded as some of these other ones like Cowboy Bebop and Avon that go for more than your typical like 26 episodes, which would be a, a, a half year of, of episodes um, if you're doing weekly. Yeah. It, I, um, yeah, I think. Most longer televised anime series are going to be based on some sort of manga. They have a a backbone to it. It's going to be shonen. Yes, yes. Um, which is still good, but I, I think it's original. Like anything else, not based on something in this day and age, original anime I think is hard to come by, mm-hmm. and it typically does not last that long. Yeah, because um, like I think probably the only thing I can really think of that would probably kind of come close to this. Might be like Full Metal Alchemist, which is a a longer based off of a manga that I think has a fairly complete story, especially Brotherhood, the the second version of the animated series. The first series was made in 2003. The manga was only like two volumes in, so they just kind of made shit up uh, at the end. Yeah, no seasons. (laughs) Yes, and again, no seasons. It's it's all one, one long thing, both the original and Brotherhood, but I think they're closer to... They sort of like weekly shown in adaptation than something original like Cowboy Bebop or Evangelion or that is still very well regarded within like the anime community. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that answered any questions. <laughs> yes. Hopefully. I mean, you know, it, we're if anybody else out there wants to know mm-hmm. or has their own opinions about it, feel free to, to email us at thinking too hard pod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. And, uh, Help, help James out here. Yeah. James, thank you again. Thank you for writing. Uh, I'm glad you were excited about this uh, Anno season uh, and Shin Godzilla. Uh, they mentioned specifically in this email. Um, but yeah, we're hoping we're being educational and uh, can't wait for you to get to this and, and hear your letter. Thank you for the kind words. Um, but as Noah said, you can email us at thinking too hard pod at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter at thinking anime. Um, you can find me on my other podcast, the bizarro version of this podcast, <laughs> Kame House Party, where myself and Vince White are attempting to go through every episode of Dragon Ball, and then we do a bunch of goofs about it, and there's no research involved. And I believe by the time this game comes out, we're now adding a video component uh, to the show. So if you would rather just watch on YouTube and see our dumb faces, <laughs> uh, you can do that. Uh, we're also streaming every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Party. Uh, Noah, where can the good folks find you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kamen Otaku. That's K-A-M-E-N-O-T-A-K-U. Uh, so if you want to see me just like retweet a bunch of bunch of stuff mainly um you can do that 
And then uh, I'm also on Twitch at twitch.tv slash KamenOtaku, K-A-M-E-O-T-A-K-U, where I am doing some video games and miniature painting um, streams. So come check that out. I typically stream Monday and Wednesday, but, you know, every now and then I will just kind of throw something up. So keep an eye on, like, my Twitter or come follow me and ring that bell to get notifications when I go live. (laughs) Hey, 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 hey. Yeah, yeah. Uh yeah, that's me. Um, thank you. Um, and again, thank you for doing a large portion of this research on this episode. Hey, it's, it's greatly not, appreciated. Not a problem at all. Um, we'll, we'll see. Have to see how how well we do with our next our next assignment. So we are. Uh, so next, we'll be talking about uh, Gainax's and Anno's first televised series. Uh, we will be watching and discussing Nadia, The Secret of Blue Water, uh, from 1990 to 1991. Um, this might be two episodes. We're, we're still not sure yet. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to have to see how it, how it plays out, how much we can yeah. actually watch and get researched. Or we might do something else entirely. <laughs> yeah, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> but yeah, look forward to that. Well, we are going to be back uh, in next month. Uh, so until then, I have been Aaron J. Shelton. And I've been Noah Card. And we've been thinking too hard. <laughs> <laughs>